Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rich Text. And today is an episode we're excited about. I'm a little nervous, um, although I don't know why. It's about something that Emma and I talk about all the time, which is motherhood and non-motherhood and being two women of around the same age who have different motherhood statuses and who are navigating like a social and cultural sphere that that sort of divides mothers and non-mothers. Yeah, this is something that we talk about a lot between uh, ourselves just in general by by, you know, virtue of the fact that like we talk about Claire's adorable son and we talk about the things that are going on in our lives. But recently we have noticed that this is also uh, just sort of in the zeitgeist and there have been a handful of news stories and essays that have kind of touched on some of the tensions um, manufactured or otherwise between millennial moms and millennial non-moms. And we decided that this would be a really interesting conversation to dive into for the podcast. And hopefully, um, hopefully you guys enjoy it. Please, yeah. please let us know. <laughs> we promise it will be exciting. Basically, this is this is the final showdown. This is a battle to the death. Like we have me, the mom, Emma does not have a child. We're mortal enemies. Only one of us exits this podcast alive. That's just how it works. Look, the media <laughs> told me there are two groups. You're in one of them and you hate the other. Yeah, it's classic in-group, out, in-group, out-group. So we wanted to start by talking about what's been going on in the news surrounding uh, motherhood lately, which is that there's been a huge freakout about declining birth rates. Uh, It's been described by various experts and in various headlines as a crisis. And I think maybe one of the triggers for this round of coverage was that a lot of people thought uh, a year ago that the pandemic would lead to a baby boom. Instead, it appears to have led to a baby bust. This surprised a lot of people um, for some reason. uh, I have to say these people don't know how sex works in the 21st century. People have birth control. Like no matter how long you're locked inside with your partner having sex, you're probably not going to get pregnant if you're using birth control These people were just really (laughs) counting on the fact that a lot of people don't know how to use birth control correctly, which is frankly, uh, a disturbing thing to count on and to call a crisis if it doesn't come to fruition. I feel like they were looking back at pandemics from like a hundred years ago being like, and then there was a baby boom. They're like, it's it's exactly the same thing as 1918. (laughs) People didn't have IUDs in 1918. Right. Yeah. Do you know how easy it was for me to maintain my birth control regimen during the pandemic? It's literally implanted in me. Yeah. And like (laughs) the people who are delaying pregnancy are are not being celibate until 35, until they're finally locked in a room with their boyfriend, girlfriend, (laughs) partner, spouse, they are using birth control. So like, obviously not only are they not going to automatically have a baby just by, by dint of all the boning, like it's like conservatives who think that like the amount of birth control you use is directly correlated to how much sex you're having. And it's like, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. People don't understand (laughs) how, Sex works, works, apparently the frequency (laughs) of it leads to pregnancy or doesn't lead to pregnancy. If you're, if you're waiting until you're 35 to have a baby, 
you're probably not being celibate until then. You are most likely using birth control that continues to hold under pandemic conditions. Plus, who wanted to get pregnant during the pandemic? I'm not saying that no one wanted to, for sure. Like if you're planning your family and it still feels like the right time to you. Right. Like absolutely. And, and frankly, I know people who got pregnant during the pandemic and had babies during the pandemic because the thing that they were already thinking about, um, they had more time to reflect on that and pause. And so they were like, I wanted to do this already. So let's, mm-hmm. let's do it now. Um, but, if but I don't, fence, right. Would you say it would tip you over towards having a baby? To I be mean, in this position of economic insecurity and precarity, like frankly, Claire talking to you, down. uh, every day during the pandemic, yeah. I was really like grateful. I didn't have a child. Yeah, no, parents are signing onto Twitter every day and being like, this sucks. Like, of course, people you were left without childcare and an infant for months. That like didn't seem it's I'm sorry, it didn't seem aspirational. It's not a great advertisement for parenting. Nothing could shock me less than the fact that there was a baby bust. And I'm I'm happy that a bunch of women aren't now raising children that they didn't want because oops, they were locked inside so long that they just spontaneously became pregnant. Like that would not <laughs> be a good outcome to me. So here we are declining birth rates. They were already declining because of a number of factors. More women in younger generations are delaying motherhood. They're delaying pregnancy. And that tends to correlate with education and career uh, opportunities. Access um, to healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons that it's both very challenging to have children in America right now because of the lack of social support and a social safety net, but also the people who are most likely to delay it are, are people who tend to have, um, other options for how to spend their twenties, uh, who have access to higher education, who have access to high paying, fulfilling careers, And so that was already happening, but now we're having this big freak out about it. Yeah. And it's interesting to see this anxiety kind of play out, um, both among conservatives and among liberals, obviously there's the, the conservative terror over, you know, a lack of specifically white babies (laughs) to, you know, fill up the population with white Christian children. Yeah. No one's ever like, well, thank God that we have immigration to continue to sustain our system with workers. It's always like make more of the white babies. Like, right. That's the answer, right? That's where the anxiety lies. Yeah. Like, like there is a real, you know, as you noted in in our, in our notes, doc, Claire, like there is a real concern perhaps about you know, the number of older people that we are going to have as a a society to support and sustain and give social security to, et cetera. Um, And or even just like on a very practical level, no matter what the social safety net system is, if you're 90 years old, you need a doctor who is probably not 90 years old. Like you're probably looking to have caretakers and you need caretakers who are younger farmers, people (laughs) producing your food. You need people who are younger doing some work to help you navigate life as an elderly person. I think that's Um, pretty, pretty obvious. Yeah. And, and if, and, and on the conservative side, again, there is not like a push to be like, yes, let's encourage more um, immigration in order to fill this gap. 
<laughs> no, that's, no. that wouldn't help anything. Um, yeah. And I mean, this is one of the, the things that I used to self-harm by reading the child-free subreddit. I don't recommend if you like children at all, um, because it is just a hellscape of people calling children like sperm that you keep as a pet or like crotch goblins. Jesus. No, it's really, that's one of almost the milder ones. Um, So there is like a certain small subset of like child-free activists or enthusiasts who like truly believe that having a child is like a hobby for parents. And it is a hobby that is simply nothing but an expense and an inconvenience and a drain for people like them who are doing what you should do with your life, which is go to restaurants where you don't have to hear children ever. And like, yeah, like sometimes I'm sure it's very frustrating that you have to deal with other people's children when you've chosen a life for yourself that does not have children in it. Children are loud. Children don't follow rules. Children are dirty. Children leave snot everywhere. But like, it's not a hobby. It's not a drain. We do need people in the future to be doctors. That's all I'm going to say. And yes, I will be forcing my son to be a doctor. That's, for this reason. Yeah, that, that's what this podcast <laughs> is actually about. Max's future. Let's talk, Claire. How can he be the most useful to me if I choose not to have a child? That's why I, I, I want know. his existence to be justified. <laughs> so I'm willing to do what I have to do. It's like, in, you know, in like decades ago in the the Catholic uh, community, when you would dedicate like one of your sons to the church and he would have to just be a priest and he'd be like, I don't want to. And he'd be like, I promised you to the church. So sorry. Yeah. Um, The other thing I find, yeah. yeah, The other thing I find kind of interesting is that there, there is sort of, we, we often have these conversations um, and sort of see it as a binary, like the people that had a bunch of kids or had no kids. And the truth is that you actually have a growing population of like women who are out of their twenties who are having children, but because they had children a bit later, they are usually having fewer children than perhaps you would. um, If everyone was like forced to start giving birth in their mid to early, in their early to mid twenties. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, exactly. Then they just keep, they they just just keep keep popping out. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it just kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of people who become parents a bit later do so because as you alluded to before, Claire, they have more choices, uh, and they have, they might be like making, um, different, sort of calculated decisions at different points in their lives. And I I think that we sort of end up erasing women who might become mothers and have one kid or two kids, but maybe they like spent their 20s single, met someone in their 30s, had a kid at 38 or 40. And then we're like, yeah, this this seems really good. And I I'm happy with my where my career is or I just don't want to put my body through that again. So like, this is where, or I just think I'm going to be happier having only one child financially. That's going to be better for me. Like there, we sort of erase all of these women in a lot of these conversations. I mean, that's not going to be enough to replace the population, Emma. And I think with white babies, that's really the problem. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Like there is a conflation in certain ways of delaying motherhood with rejecting motherhood. Um, which is not the same thing. Like waiting until you're in your thirties to have a child is not the same thing as rejecting the whole concept of being a parent. Um, it's just delaying it and maybe having a smaller family and that's totally fine. And it's good that women have that option, um, that they're not just like, some suddenly pregnant whenever they're locked in an apartment with someone and they just have to have another baby. Um, I think that we were referencing a little bit here, Jill Filipovic's uh, article, women are having fewer babies because they have more choices in the, in the times. Oh yeah. It's a great op-ed highly recommend. We'll, we'll put the, the link <laughs> in our, in our notes. Yeah. And it definitely, it attempts to reframe this baby bust narrative in a more positive way and to say, oh, what if lower birth rates are a good thing? Um, For many women, it doesn't reflect hardship or unmet desire, but a new landscape of opportunity. And that's absolutely true. It's also true that it reflects a lot of women not having children that they do want to have because it's too expensive or because their, their community or their family are not set up in ways that can support them having the second or third or fourth child that they really want because our families are so unsupported and our communities are so atomized. And that's not good either. (laughs) No, I mean, ideally, right. You would have social services and policies in place that supported people who desired to become parents at any point in their lives that it worked for them. And also there wouldn't be an overwhelming cultural pressure specifically on women to tie their value and usefulness to whether or not they become mothers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like we should be giving people as many choices as possible in, in that sense. And we should support all of those varying choices. Um, And we should, celebrate that, which is, I think, ultimately what Jill is advocating for. She does um, mention in her op-ed that greater social safety net um, and policy change would help women um, who are not having the children that they want to have, which is like certainly a subset in this data. I think that what ends up happening in this conversation is that there are different kind of policy and cultural norm approaches that different ideological factions are pushing because of broader goals that they have, you know? So you have, for example, various brands of conservative or just even like pro-natalist non-conservatives who are saying like, oh, we need universal childcare. We need a child uh, allowance for parents who are, going to be their primary caretakers so that they're still getting paid. These are like wonderful policies that I very much support. Um, But it's very troubling to me when that is being pushed by people whose clear agenda is to get more babies born, specifically, typically more white babies born, and to kind of gently press women back into the home. 
Conversely, then you have, I think, sometimes on the left, people lashing back out at that in ways that can be quite dismissive of the actual material needs of people who are mothers and who are children and who deserve to have their needs met without being used as like a tool and some sort of plot to, you know, jack up the the baby birthing rate. And that is very thorny because what we what we want is policies, I think, what, what you and I want are policies that support all people to be able to have the families that they that they want without being barred by their finances or by the lack of social support, but who also aren't like pressured or forced or socially like coerced into having children that, that don't feel like the right path for their life. And I think that that combination would allow for happier families, happier moms, healthier, healthier children, happier children. But it always seems to like end up getting like tipping into this weird place. That's like, actually we shouldn't pay women who are full-time stay-at-home moms because that's retrograde and they should have jobs. You know what I mean? Like it just ends up become, or, you know, we, we actually, we should pay women only to stay home and not do universal childcare because women belong in the home. And right. it always seems to be tangled or muddied in some way that you realize it's actually about some sort of broader agenda and it's not right. about It's, it's about lives. a broader ideology. And it's about, I think we so often use motherhood as a symbol for something mm-hmm. and um, actual parents, you know, of, of all gender identities get kind of caught up in that. Um, and you know, as someone who doesn't have a kid and feels ambivalent and frankly confused about, about whether I want to have a child, there is like, I have felt flashes of that, just that resentment because there is this overarching feeling that you are, especially as a woman that first of all, that you have, that you have limited time. So I think being in, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm approaching 34. And so I think that pressure is, is ratcheting up. It's like, here's your window. It's, it's closing. Um, you have to decide and don't fuck this up because if you, you know, there's this overwhelming thing of like, if you think you might regret it, just do it, just pop out a baby. Mm. Um, because that's it. And, and so I think that sometimes that frustration that people who always knew they never wanted to have kids or feel confused and ambivalent and want, their milestones that don't include children to, to feel celebrated like that frustration can sometimes be misdirected, uh, at parents where the actual frustration is, is with the fact that motherhood is wielded as, as a, as a weapon, both against people who become mothers and against people who don't. Yeah, that's so true. I think that when you're in the position of being a late 20 something, 30 something, 40 something woman who has not had a child, there is a very present sense that you are stepping out of line, that you're not fulfilling your role, 
um, that you're going to be asked about this and pressured about it and have it hinted to you that you're really missing out um, and that this is a way to pressure you to comply with the expectations. Um, I think sometimes it's easy and understandable to mistake this for a sense that once you did become a mom, you would then be celebrated and accepted and treated as a whole person. <laughs> that is like, unfortunately, not the case. you're still a woman. What I so. found really the hardest is when you are in a circle that is delaying motherhood, that is like educated and career oriented. Um, it actually can feel like you've been a little bit cast out of, of the feminist circle that you are in. That's like, Mm -hmm. there's a bonding that goes on around like, Oh, we don't need kids. Like we have other stuff going on in our lives and you're no longer part of that conversation. And it can be painful to be like, what are my choices now? Do I identify with people who build their identity around motherhood and how that is a fulfillment of their potential as women? Or do I cling to this other brand of, of female culture that I, that I participated in before, which is about feminism and women's independence and, and, and ideally, I don't like, why don't you get to have both? Right. Right. You know, I think there should be a space to have both. And I think it, this, this thing happens a little bit, but less intensely around, um, having a partner. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there is a certain, like, I, I always say like, I've now been in a, a committed relationship for more than two years, but I still like identify as a single woman almost, you know, like in terms (laughs) of my like cultural situation. Yeah. My, my cultural touch points, um, because I spent my entire twenties dating and, and single and never in a long-term relationship. And because like motherhood, this, you know, um, unpartneredness being a woman, you are sort of like forced into the defensive position Mm -hmm. when you are a single woman, especially, you know, once you're probably like in your mid twenties on especially. Um, yeah. And so there is like an inherent bonding that happens with other women who understand that experience. And that's a really beautiful thing and a necessary thing, I think, to gird yourself against all of the pressure and all of the forces that sort of tell you that, Mm -hmm. again, you're not desirable, you're worth less. And, um, sometimes that can manifest as in like a resentment towards Mm -hmm. people who are in relationships. Um, and, and I think that the same thing happens with parenting. Like I've, I've noted it, that instinct in myself, because you say you feel left out sometimes Mm -hmm. or, or cast out. Um, I have certain circles of my, my social life where now like everyone has children. And mm-hmm. so that is the, the dominant way, understandably that activities are organized, the things that are taken into consideration for, you know, planning a vacation or the, the conversations that are happening in a group text center mm-hmm. largely around parenting, around motherhood, around that particular experience. And, um, and I can't, quite tap into that in the same way. I don't feel like, you know, 
I can't be friends with people who have kids. <laughs> not, not at all. Um, and I still feel valued in those, in those relationships, but there are inherently just elements of that experience that I can't tap into, that I can't mm-hmm. give advice to, that I can't, um, speak to in the way that perhaps I could when we were all at the same, at the same stage in, yeah. in that. And I think that's just sort of where probably where, um, where we're at just being the age that we are, where we have peers that are kind point. of, yeah, that are kind of at all, mm-hmm. at all stages of this and are, and are having these conversations. Um, yeah. And are unsure about what, you know, the rest of their lives might look like. Yeah. And it's, it's sad to me how the cleavage kind of happens. And I say this also, like, I don't think that I've had any like fallings out with friends around this. I I never feel like my friends are unsupportive or not understanding. Um, They're all wonderful. And we all are continuing to try to be good friends to each other. But um, one thing that I have been thinking about is like how much in the past I've always expected my friends to be very similar to me and to be coming from a very similar experience and how that was kind of limiting to me. You know, I came into motherhood not really knowing anything about it because I didn't have any friends who weren't single or childless coupled women of exactly my age and exactly my setting. You know, like I I didn't have close friendships with women who had other experiences And that is not ideal. Like, I do think it's good to have friendships across this this boundary. And it's made me think about like having, are our friendships totally just defined by our lifestyle? You know, like, do we, do we only have friendships with people who are free to go out to the club with us or who are only free to go to the park and watch our kids run around together or to do childcare swaps is that how, is that what friendship means? Or is there a way for us to be valuable to each other across these different ways that our lives are organized? And I think that it's a little bit of both. Like we do need people who have the same experiences as us. I would really kill to have more mom friends that I could do childcare swaps with and go to the park with. It would massively improve my quality of life. But like the thought of drifting away from my friends who don't have kids is like extremely heartbreaking. They're very important to me. And I still care about all the stuff that's going on in their lives. Like, it doesn't seem like I've heard people say like, oh, it just seems petty now that like to talk about like breakups or whatever. No, it doesn't. Like I very passionately care about my friends, non-child related (laughs) experiences and that I want to hold on to that. So why does it just feels like sometimes it just feels like we're being sorted, you know? Yeah. And I think that there is you know, we were talking about this a bit last night when we were planning this episode. And, you know, I do think obviously some of this is just, uh, it happens on a practical level. Like Mm -hmm. you're moving about the world in a specific way, in a specific rhythm. And the people that match up with that rhythm, it's just easier to maintain friendships with, especially in in adulthood when you have a lot of responsibilities. Um, But some of it is this like odd external pressure that tells us that we, when we've moved from one of these like categories to another, that somehow we've, we've fundamentally changed. And I think there is a way that like, yes, of course, especially when having a child, the organizing structure of your life 
does change in a very practical way. That is very real. Mm -hmm. But like you, Claire, as a person who you are at your core, as someone who talks to you basically every day and has throughout when you were not (laughs) a mother, Mm -hmm. um, through, you know, your pregnancy, through when you had Max, like you at your core have, have not changed. You still have as many different varied interests as you did before. Um, and because we have a clear reason to be in contact a lot of the time, I actually don't feel at all like, oh, the only thing we talk about now is your kid. Like that doesn't, it doesn't feel that way at all. But I think, um, part of that is that we give each other fewer reasons to kind of connect and and have those conversations. And if you're just seeing mm-hmm. someone less, then yeah. maybe it feels like what you're getting from them is only this, you know, this one thing because we're trying to give yeah. each other the broad strokes. Right. Yeah. And if you're doing the big update, like it's hard for me to think of anything big that's happened in my life in the past two months, other than all the times that Max has gotten a cold and had to stay home from daycare. But, um, you know, maybe something professional here and there. But yeah, like if you I before I had kids, I don't think I would have really known what to say to that. Um, And and that can be a challenge. It's also like logistically very hard. I think one of our old coworkers is trying to organize a meetup. And, you know, one of my favorite things in life used to be happy hour. Like I made a lot of my friends by leaving work with them at five or six and going to a bar and just talking for like two hours. And that is exactly the time that I am always unavailable now from five to seven. I'm doing dinner and bedtime without exception. Like I basically can't miss that. And so every time slot is like exactly five to seven. And of course, like that's the time slot that worked best for me too back in the day. And now it just completely doesn't work at all. And that's one of those like little shifts that like when you're in lockdown, almost you don't notice. And now that you're seeing people a little more, I'm like, how do people negotiate the fact that they can't do happy hour anymore? Um, and, and what would a society look like where, where parents and non-parents could, could easily, meet and work with each other without having these sort of parallel but separate tracks that their lives run on. I think that our culture is just like, it slots you into these routines based on what's going on in your life. And I don't think it has to be like that. I do think that like, that there are, there are ways and maybe not, like, I'm not an expert, but like, (laughs) It's like, once you have a kid, is that really it for your five to sevens forever? Um, unless you hire a nanny, like that kind of breaks my heart. But like, why, why is there no community in which your child exists within the community? And so do you, and so do all your friends and you can meet each other on a more equal basis rather because, than it being like, Claire, I have my little like pet that I have to like right. keep eyes on at all times. And like, when I have a moment away from that, we can grab a quick drink. Well, I think what you're speaking to also is the fact that a lot of the way that our society is set up, especially our approach to work was predicated on the idea that men were the ones leaving the house mm-hmm. and everyone was in a heterosexual couple. Mm-hmm. Men left the house. They had this freedom of time and all of the labor 
that goes into maintaining the, you know, domestic sphere, having a clean home, having a child, having a pet, have like cooking meals. Mm-hmm. All of that is relegated to that man's female partner. And yeah. now we as women are left to to navigate a system that was frankly never built for us, for our bodies, for the things that, for the choices that we might make. Um, and mm-hmm. so we end up in sort of a, a screwed position, like damned if you do damned, if you don't. Yeah. It's really such a fifties thing. Like the idea of the husband, the middle-class husband with his briefcase, who goes to the office and then he might stop at the bar for a whiskey afterwards. Or if he has a good wife who loves him, he'll come home and she'll be dressed up and have her makeup on and she'll offer him a cocktail to have on the couch while she's making dinner. You know, if he wanted to go be with his buddies (laughs) when he came home, the meal was cooked. Yeah. Well, exactly. What, what I, what I mean is that it all revolved around the man having that happy hour, right? Yes. And the freedom, right. The freedom to make those choices, right? The woman is either holding it down on the home front while he does it elsewhere, or she's providing (laughs) Providing a happy hour at home (laughs) so that he doesn't have to go elsewhere, possibly meeting a cute secretary or whatever. Um, And this is like such a small slice of the population that even experienced this. Um, and for such a short period of time, but it's so present in our middle and upper class norms still like that. I do think, yeah, like a, a lot of it became about like, oh, now women can do that. Right. And when I think of my 20 something lifestyle, it was not compatible with being around people who are different ages than me, people who have kids or who are kids. Like it was all based around my t- day at work happy hour, (laughs) ordering takeout, like watching TV alone on the couch. And there, I loved it, you know, like that made me very happy. And yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things about that. I still have some (laughs) of those days and many wonderful things about it. But, but I also am like, I do think that it's part of this process by which women are getting these options is that we're not really reconceiving what the world looks like, right? We're not. No, we're trying to just slot. We're saying everyone. women, you can have access to this system too now. Right. A bit. Until you not decide fully. you really, until you're like, I really actually do want a kid though. And then you're like, oh, this life does not sustain having a kid. No one around me knows how to fit my kid into their life. I don't know how to fit a kid into my life. And that's because we're all living like 1950s businessmen out here. Exactly. Exactly. Or like the other option is to go the, you know, reactionary conservative route and just be like, women should have been in the home this whole time. (laughs) Just stay in the domestic sphere, have as many children as possible, ideally dress them in matching outfits, monetize them, become a Mormon mommy influencer. It's like the work of social reproduction has to be done by someone. So m- women have to do it and they have to do it for no pay. And that's what I've come around to during this <laughs> conversation. I'm glad, no, I'm glad I we feel got like, there. I feel like the solution has been always in the past. Like I'm going to push that off onto someone with less power than me. So if I'm a man, oh, especially a white man, especially a more wealthy white man, it's going to be my wife and any staff that she hires, um, female children, maybe. And if I'm 
a wife, maybe, yeah, maybe it's domestic staff, maybe it's my daughters, but the more that women are gaining access to lifestyles outside of being a housewife, if they're white, um, you know, obviously many women have always worked outside the home. Um, but to, for women who are getting to experience this like aspirational, professional career oriented lifestyle, it just gets pushed off onto the various services that much lower paid people do, you know, Uber drivers and laundromats and, how do we like actually reorganize society so that we can reproduce it without people being exploited? I feel like it always just comes back down to that. And, it's like someone is going to be exploited. In, and much smarter yeah. people than me have written very well about <laughs> this. But like in day to day, I just keep coming back to this. I'm like, I want to be able to have me and my husband like take care of our home and take care of our baby, but not be shackled to them you know, but to also be able to participate in the public sphere, to also be able to do work. And there isn't enough time in the day. And there, that's why I hate that you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce. (laughs) shit. I'm like, she has so many people helping her. Like you have to, like the only options are sort of to shackle yourself to these responsibilities or to outsource some of them. And it's like, And you obviously have to have money to do the outsourcing or honestly, to a certain extent to not have children because right. Or to not have kids or to not home have a home is less work to a significant degree than caring for multiple children as well. Um, And so that does, I think, make it seem more much more manageable. It's what it's one thing to be a professional woman on your own or with a partner and another thing to then take on all of that care work. Um, sorry, yeah, I, I don't just know. like it really seems I get, like a lot. I get really carried away so, during these conversations. I'm sorry. Um, why are you apologizing? I think this <laughs> is for me, this is a very interesting conversation because being so ambivalent, I feel like I'm I constantly am going in circles um, yeah. around around this question and around what my life would look like if I did Mm -hmm. eventually have a kid and how it would change and wondering whether that change would be worth it. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's just like you make a choice and then you deal with it and you get the good and you get the bad. And that's just like kind of how life works. Um, but there you have the facts of life. Yeah. I, I am interested to talk a little bit, um, about Liz Brunig's very like, uh, controversial. Yeah, it was. Piece. I think yeah, mostly it was, Liz is controversial. Liz is controversial as as a person, um, certainly. But she wrote an op ed in May about being a young mother, and it sparked some really, really intense conversations that I think, like, I sort of like was startled by in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the piece is called I Became a Mother at 25 and I Don't Regret It. Um, One of the critiques is that being 25 is not actually young, statistically speaking. She does address that in the piece. Um, It is very young in certain social milieu of which she was the two of us, frankly. Yeah. And the two of like she like us was surrounded by a lot of people who are not, you know, who are career oriented, uh, white middle to upper class um, women who did not look into motherhood until their thirties. And she was 25. 
Uh, I'm sure that felt very young. And I just wanted to say, I think one of the reasons that this piece was pretty controversial is that is her, she, her she is her. Yeah. She's a, a leftist writer, uh, especially economically speaking. Like she, she is socialist, I think. Um, but she's also super Catholic. She's like a Catholic lefty type, which means on certain social issues, she is quite conservative, including uh, abortion. Like she has hinted in the past repeatedly that she is pro-life. And so that I do think for a lot of women reading this piece, knowing that it felt like it was skirting that pretty, pretty severely while, while trying to make a case for having children young. Um, It's hard not to forget that on some level, she just thinks you should have kids. Yeah. And I think that she, the way that she talks about young parenthood is in or younger parenthood is in some ways like really sweet and really beautiful. And I think that to some people reading it, knowing her background and her politics, it felt insidious in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like it was like pushing, pushing an agenda in in a package that felt palatable to a more uh, secular progressive audience. Right. And the piece kind of, I mean, listen, there's a lot about the piece that I really liked and yet me too. It also really pissed me off. She makes a really strong case that there should be far more social and financial supports for parents and children in this country, which I absolutely agree with. Um, she kind of makes the the left case, the left wing case for pro pronatalism. Right. So like, <laughs> You know, one of the things that she says is the case for young parenthood would be simpler to plead if it weren't for the particular back and forth, snowflakes this, boomers that. She's talking about this intergenerational conflict over when to have kids. Millennials stand accused of immaturity and selfishness, of lacking the grit and commitment to bring up children who, I gather, get in the way of avocado toast and grapefruit mimosas. The reality is less contemptible and more prosaic. Young people are hesitant to start their families because of legitimate worries about money and stability, along with a variety of cultural concerns that were their baby boomer parents honest, they would admit issued from their own design. And like, this makes me nuts because she's both right in certain ways. And also, why do we have to plead a case for young parenthood? Like the assumption that it is a good here that people should be convinced of I find a little bit troubling. I yeah, think people I think should have kids on their own schedule. That's what bothered me about the piece too. It felt like it, it's like she frames it, you know, in the, in the headline as though she's like responding to attacks on her identity as a young mother. Um, there's not really evidence that she has been particularly attacked for this. And then in that sort of defensiveness, she it feels like she's implying that people who don't have children young are inherently missing out, are inherently, you know, less worthy or they need to be. Convinced. They just don't understand. They need the case to be made to them. And also the, the hint here that, you know, oh, children get in the way of avocado toast and grapefruit mimosas. The reality is less contemptible. So the idea here is that it is contemptible for people to delay having kids because they are enjoying 
their non-child having lifestyle. <laughs> I disagree. Like, I mean, I do think that it is challenging to have a society that is set up to be sort of like a playground for like childless 20 somethings and that struggles to like integrate families and, and young adults who don't have kids. However, like you do have to give up a lot of your pleasures when you have kids. I don't see anything wrong with taking that into account. I don't see anything. I think it's very good to go into it open-eyed and being like, I'm probably not going to be having a leisurely brunches with my friends every weekend anymore. That's a real loss to me because I loved those brunches. I'm allowed to take that into account. That is not contemptible. And you're allowed to both want kids and acknowledge that that's a loss that you are going to have to mourn or, or being in that experience and mourning that loss. Like, I, I think this almost ends up painting motherhood as this thing that like once you're in absorbs you and you're grateful for all the time. And it has to be this like Uh beautiful, idyllic experience um, in order to sell it to the masses. And I I also find that like fundamentally troubling because then we are pushing women into a very challenging experience and sort of demanding that like women on the other side of this veil who are mothers, you know, only paint it in the best light. And Mm -hmm. how does that possibly encourage honest relationships between mothers and non-mothers. Right. I I'm always unsettled by the idea that we should be, I remember this from before I had kids that I, I felt like women were lied to a lot about it. And I, I had similar thoughts actually about the vaccine rollout, which is like, do we need to paint an, uh, an extra rosy picture of what this experience will be like to convince people to get it? Or will that just make them feel betrayed and suspicious when it's not like that? And so I was really glad, for example, that I knew the vaccine side effects could suck. They did. I'm fine. It was totally <laughs> worth it. But also the way that women are often told about childbirth before they go through it, I'm hearing, I hear you hear that it can be like such a beautiful experience. Maybe you'll orgasm during it. I mean, maybe I haven't met anyone who had that experience (laughs) in real life, but there's this fear that if you don't, that if you tell women what it will actually be like to have kids, that they won't do it. And you know what? Then they shouldn't have kids. Like that is absolutely their choice. Right. And that we should like be tricking our friends into having kids by being like, I get all the sleep I want. My son never does anything but like play by himself and then look up at me and go, I love you, mama. Like, (laughs) that's not helpful. Like, I would rather have friends who never had kids than friends who had kids because I convinced them that it was only going to be a joy because that would be that would be wrong. And then they would find out that I lied to them. Right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it is, it is so short-sighted the idea that we would want women who don't want, who on some level don't want to be parents to be forced to be parents. Like I am not pro forced birth, which is why I believe in the right for women to terminate pregnancies. (laughs) Right. Like controversial, but I'm with you. Yeah, I know. I'm sure this will be just a real shock to anyone who spent years (laughs) listening to us. Um, But we are not anti-abortion on on this podcast. And (laughs) it's like, yeah, like tell women the truth. And guess what? 
there are a lot of women who will still choose to have children knowing that. And there are women who will never get married, but feel a deep desire to become mothers and they will become mothers. And you know what? I know I may not, there may not have been a baby boom during the pandemic, but there was an egg freezing boom Mm. because there are a lot of women who want to preserve their fertility options. There are a lot of women who are looking forward into their lives and thinking now is not the right time because I want to do X, Y, or Z, or I want to be prepared in X, Y, and Z ways. But, or because there's a pandemic or because there's a freaking pandemic and I don't want to like wear a mask to a bunch of like prenatal appointments, you know, for whatever, whatever the, the calculations mm-hmm. you're making are as an individual are great and valid and like giving people access. Um, you know, obviously we're speaking about women, but I want to be really clear and acknowledge that there are people, people who are not women who give birth and who have ovaries and eggs and are go- perhaps going through those fertility preservation processes. Um, and like giving access to all of those things to as many people as possible should be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that she does in this piece is she makes a case for, for giving more support for women to have kids whenever they want, you know, or or for men, for, for there to be more of a social safety net for parents and children. Um, But I just find it a little uncomfortable always that this is framed through the fact that there are fewer babies being born to, to parents who are of a certain demographic at a certain age. Um, she goes through a lot of the statistics um, showing that, you know, women who are white, American, very educated, et cetera, are far more likely to delay having kids um, until later in life. And that means that a lot of young moms are still out there, like a lot of young moms, and a lot of them are black and brown. And I don't see why we can't have a conversation about how urgent it is to provide benefits and adequate reproductive care to those people yes, who are having kids rather than hoping that it's some sort of like carrot that will convince like white lawyers who are 33 to have kids right now, um, which maybe it will. Sure. And if they wanted to have kids and the lack of a social safety net was stopping them, then I think that's beautiful. I think that if you want to have kids, I want society to provide the support that, that it, that it seems feasible to you, but there are a lot of people who are having kids, even though they do not have the support right now (laughs) and they don't have it right now and they need it really badly. And that always kind of sticks in my craw a little bit when we frame it as a declining birth rate thing, when there are so many, so many babies and moms and dads who need it now. And many of them are not white. And so they don't get consideration in the same way. I don't think that was her intention at all, but I do find that the way that this conversation is always framed gives me that little bit of discomfort. Yeah. And also like like we're hyper-focused on this one particular mm -hmm. group. Um, and perhaps part of that is that a lot of the people who populate media are Mm -hmm. like us members of that, of that group. And so our particular, um, 
you know, choices and anxieties are kind of over reflected back at us. Right. And it's like, we're not, we're not exceptions to this. Obviously our whole podcast here is about us and people who look like us. And we know who, whose experiences we're observing up close, but like that can be so distorting as to what the actual needs are for a social safety net for, for parents and kids. Um, and so there's one thing that she did caveat that I think is really important and good, which is, she says, you know, obviously naysayers will observe that Nordic welfare wonderlands still sport uninspiring birth rates to which I would reply that faults and benefits for families are good, regardless of whether they boost birth rates or stand down delays, because the primary beneficiaries of these benefits are after all children and their worth is self-evident. I absolutely agree. I feel like that could be the thrust of most of the piece, yeah. to be honest. Like, I don't care if giving universal childcare convinces one more woman who looks like me to have a baby, as long as, first of all, I have access to it. I would like it whether or not it convinces other people to have kids or not. It would be very helpful. Also, a lot of women who don't look like us out there who need that, whether or and not it children convinces. who will have access to care. Exactly. Exactly. Like imagine. Seems good to me. <laughs> Seems good. Um, it's like, it's like, is the whole country just going to do this, this deterrence thing for like, I think so much of this is rooted in the fear that we will convince black and brown parents to have too many kids. Like we can't give universal childcare because then black and brown women will just start having children and they'll overwhelm us. There'll be too many. And that is like, I mean, I don't think I have to say it. That is like insanely racist. And it's very rarely, I think, voiced in the public sphere. But that is what's undergirding a lot of the opposition. Yeah, there is a lot of a lot of white anxiety, especially conservative white anxiety um, about the like unwhitening of of the the country and how birth rates play into that. And then it's like, oh, oops, we're suppressing birth rates among white women who have more access to you know, resources to not have children who have more uh, options for what to devote their lives to through education and career opportunities. Oops, like we accidentally are suppressing those birth rates. Like, what could it be? Could it be that we're setting policy to try to suppress birth rates among, you know, people of, of other races? Like, this it's all gross. So it's fucked. all, it's, it's so fucked. It's so disturbing. I mean, there's just, look, racism is really this goes without saying, but like racism is really like fundamentally baked in to the DNA of almost like every um, organizing, you know, principle of our of our nation. And that is, you know, this is no exception. It, it really isn't. Um, it can it should be like front and center in every conversation about it. Um, and there are like a couple more points I wanted to touch on in this essay, just because I think, I do think that it's not, it's partly that Liz is, is herself controversial, but also she does have in this column an insane number of trigger points for both moms and non-moms, I think, like things that like press on some sort of nerve, partly because this issue is, is so sensitive. Um, but one thing that she said that really drove me up the wall was, um, let me quote, there are good reasons to wait to have children and good reasons not to. It's that latter notion that I often consider, but rarely mention to friends of mine who are on the fence. 
knowing that they're typically inundated with unsolicited advice from older acquaintances and relatives who all seem to know precisely how to fix this putatively immature, allegedly selfish generation. That kind of scolding about growing up obscures the truest thing about having children, which is that it isn't a chore, but a pleasure, not the end of freedom as you know it, but the beginning of a kind of liberty you can't imagine. So, I mean, I don't want to deny her experience of motherhood. It, this feels condescending to me as a person who does not have children and who is, who is, you know, approaching 34, this yeah. feel like the, the specifically the part where she says it's the beginning of a kind of Liberty you can't imagine. I think there is a oh, way yeah. that sometimes you can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine it because mm-hmm. I do not, I have not had that experience. It's sort of the same way that I feel that I've been told, um, by, by motherhood media, uh, that, you know, I don't understand levels of love and I could only access Mm. certain types of love uh, if I had a child. And Mm. if I don't have a child, I will just simply be missing out on, you know, the next level, level of love. You're never going to level up. If you exactly. Don't have, if you don't have kids, and there is, I think, love an inherent prison, sort of by the condescension <laughs> there. <laughs> no, that's interesting. You're absolutely right, and of course, I it pissed me off in a different way as a mom. So I I didn't even register that. I'm so glad you said that because having a child, I just don't recognize this portrayal. <laughs> it's 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 confusing to me. Like it it feels like a lie. Maybe it's just that some moms really take to it in such a way that they don't notice any losses or strictures. I don't know if that's true of her, but you are losing freedoms and pleasures from your life. As we discussed before, unless you like disliked everything that was possible to you when you didn't have kids and you love sleeping in, I love love sleeping in. I, I miss it so much. Max was sick this week. He was out of daycare he was waking us up at 4am coughing and crying, which sucked. Cause you know, you're worried about your kid. You're also so exhausted. <laughs> I got like a infected blocked clog for some reason, maybe cause I don't drink enough water when he's home. Cause I can't find the time. I miss having time to drink water. <laughs> I miss long brunches. <laughs> I miss like being able to go out late at night with friends and to happy hour and to be able to plan a trip to like Europe or even just anywhere that doesn't specifically revolve around child safety and convenience. I loved those things. I miss them. Of course I do. That is a loss. It's real, even if it's worth it, which it is. Like I made this choice with open eyes. I don't regret it. And there he are adds a lot things, to my life. Right. There are things that you gain. I, I don't discount sure. that at all. But I don't see a value for parents in suggesting that if you love your kids, it's objectively not a chore to raise them. You can love your job and it's still work. Right. Labor like, is labor. And labor I think, look, we, we also it's so interesting that you you put it that way, because this makes it sort of draws a parallel for me in in the way that we um, so often frame creative labor, you know, we're in creative mm. industries. So much of my career was was spent with people telling me I should just be so grateful to have mm. this job that like, it's not even work because I get to do what I love as a job. And you know what that did that like discouraged me for asking for raises and yeah. 
for demanding, uh, you know, adequate time off or, and fewer, yeah. you know, more dignified hours. Like it actually, that's it what also, that did. It also made me really depressed because if you're dissatisfied in any way, it's on, it's your you fault. Have, you're, you're a your flawed fault. individual. It's your fault. Like what you're doing is a treat. It is a freedom. It is, it is, there's, there's nothing about it that should ever be acknowledged as difficult or compensated. And I think that that can, can fuel a lot of, of misery, like emotional misery to know that your work is, is treated as not worthy of recognition because you should simply love it. You should be paid in your love for it. Right. And it's not, that's not helpful in the, you know, professional sphere. And it's certainly not helpful when we talk about parenting, like parenting can be both a joy in moments and also a lot of labor and can involve things that are hard and upsetting. Like those things can all be true and that's okay because it's not an ideal. It is a choice you make that organizes your life in a lot of ways. Yeah. I always compared it at the beginning to a choice that I had never understood and never will. It's an experience I choose to continue for the rest of my life, not even being able to imagine, which is running a marathon. I never understood why you would do that to yourself. You have to get up early for months to train, and then it all culminates in you running even longer one day like 26 months. Like, I just, I don't understand why you would do that to yourself. Like, aren't there things you'd rather be doing with your time? And then what you'd find, I'm sure what I've found is that there is a real joy in extreme discipline. There is satisfaction in pushing the boundaries of what your body and, and mind can do. And I'm sure that many marathoners feel that way. I choose to never have that experience and I'm fine with it. I I think that's okay. There are plenty of experiences for us to all have, but it's, it's good. It's worth it. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a chore at any point. Of course it is like, it's a lot of work like running a marathon. (laughs) Um, And that was one of the things that really rubbed a nerve about this piece is that just like the idea that, that having a child is Everyone should just do it and do it as quickly as possible because you will find that like, actually it only expands your life. It only makes it easier and more wonderful. I guess I shouldn't say easier, but it only makes it freer, whatever that means. Um, Is there anything that, I don't know, we've been talking for like an hour. Yeah. I feel like maybe, maybe we should wrap this up here and then, um, we would love to hear from our listeners about whether you'd like us to continue these, these kind of conversations. We had a whole other section of this particular episode planned, and I think we will save it for um, a different episode. But if there are any sort of subsets of this larger conversation that you guys would want us to get into, um, any questions that you would want explored or or answered. Obviously we have no definitive answers, but we can talk about anything. Uh, Just please let us know, send us an email at Claire and Emma pod at at Gmail or comment on this post. Um, This is sort of new podcast territory for us, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. 
yeah, it's, it feels a little messier for me than the usual because it's bound up in so much emotion. And it's, so it's almost hard to be analytical. I just start talking out of a rush of feeling and it was really helpful to talk through some of these things with you. So thank you. And, uh, it's been a joy, not a chore, only a gift, only a gift. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I hope we can continue this conversation soon. Looking forward to hearing from, from you guys. And that's it for this episode of rich text. We'll be back soon.